Stefan Dilberg for Biz News, and with me is Lee Bristow. She's the executive director and founder of the Sumandila Scholarship Trust. So, Lee, welcome to Biz News. Um, what is the Sumandila Scholarship Trust? So, it's an organization that looks for extraordinary children who are exceptionally bright, particularly in maths and English, and usually go on to be into the sciences, engineering, technology, etc. From incredibly poor rural homes or economically disadvantaged rural homes, and we take them on to one of three programs. They go on to a Saturday and holiday school program and remain in rural schools, or they get full bursaries and scholarships to go to an independent or a Model C school. But the real success lies in the fact that there's tremendous wraparound support, both academic and psychosocial. And then we help them to apply for university, for university bursaries, get into university, and the wraparound support continues through university and even for some of them into the workplace because we help them with connections to graduate programs, jobs, et cetera, et cetera, CVs, um, interviews, driver's licenses, all the sorts of things you can imagine they would need. So this is in the Northern Province, which is one of South Africa's poorest provinces. It, I think indeed it is the, yeah, the Eastern Cape and um, South Africa, I mean Limpopo, are the poor, poorest provinces of South Africa. So um, yes, it's in the Limpopo, it's Vembe, specifically in the Vembe area, which is the northernmost part of Limpopo. And um, it, um, children are majority vendor, although we do have some Tsonga children. And right now, as of January the 2023, we have 145 students at top universities in South Africa, 132 graduates. Now, bear in mind that we're largely in um, engineers, um, teachers, doctors, nurses, computer scientists. Those are our main fields because that's our focus and our greatest need in the country, I think. 132 graduates. 53 either completed or doing postgrad, which is amazing for kids from Quintal Four schools, and an 89% university pass rate. Very, very few of our kids don't finish university. So, so for people who might not know that area very well, just tell us what a typical kid looks like, you know, where they come from and, and the levels of poverty. So we usually only have children who have what we call, well, you would know, the SASA grant which means they get government, they, they live on either their grandparents' pension or on a government grant, which is really less than 2,000 rand a month. There are a few exceptions. Children of domestic workers, waiters, have their own little um, electrician um, business or something like that. Um, some of them live in one-room tasks. We have one boy who's the most extraordinary child. He's going to Stellenbosch for engineering next year. Ten of them live in a one-room task with no windows. Um, some of the houses are better resourced. Some of the families, there's... Um, both grandparents, some of the fa it's very rare to have a present father, very rare, but some of them are orphans. And so the, the ones who get full scholarships actually live in a hostel that we have, and um, particularly the orphans, because obviously it's extremely difficult if you don't have Wi-Fi, electricity, running water, etc. So, but it, they vary. Some of them do have running water, but, um, you know, it would go from one extreme to the other. So, so some of them, as you mentioned, actually live nearby. Does that make their lives easier to, to actually improve their education? Yeah, absolutely. Those who have the full residential program, obviously they get everything. They, they stay in the hostel. We try to keep them tightly 
connected with their community. So they do go home on weekends if there's not something really urgent on at school. But the children on our Saturday school program, and I think what I neglected to say, um, so we've got just over 100 students on our um, Saturday school program. They actually, we pay for them to come to Saturday school. They have um, academic support. They get fed. They get their transport to and from. So they also get a lot of wraparound support. Got about the 130 secondary students in, our, in that program. And obviously then they go on to the tertiary program. So there's support and a, re, a, a, a tremendous effort to keep them rooted in their communities. And how, how did you find, you know, if they only do, say, Saturday school, what do you teach them? So we do maths, accounting, science and IT and English. Those are the subjects we do because most of our students and we only do, we don't do math literacy at all. So those are the subjects that we work on. I think one of the things we're most proud of is that we have science and math teachers. You know, students from these kind of backgrounds very rarely will go into education or conservation or those sorts of areas if they're good at maths and science. And we have. We've got a, a maths and science teacher at St. Stithians. Hi, boys, hi. And as you can imagine, I mean, that's a, and she's from a village, a top, top school in South Africa. So we're proud of our students who are teachers, but um, we've also got doctors and they work in rural hospitals, nurses, midwives, quite a large bias towards engineering, which we're often criticized for, but we need engineers. So these are the success stories. And where did this idea come from? Because you are the founder. Yes. So um, I started a, a school, a private school, Cambridge International School, actually, in Louis Trickard of all places. When I came out to live here, I'd been living in London. And, and then in 2007, I became frustrated that it was only a school for middle-class children. And I was talking to a very good friend of mine in London, and he said, well, what do we do about that? So we decided we would go and look for these gems. And they really are. I mean, this is not a hard luck story. These are extraordinary children. They're champions. But they, so often their way, their road to success is full of obstacles, you know. And so we decided to, we, we select far and wide. We decided in the Vembry district that we'd select children. We started with nine children in 2007. And we've been going since then. That just sound an extraordinary story. How do you get the funds going? How, what is your funding, funding model? I mean, fundraising, as everybody knows, is extremely hard work. We've been very lucky. We have some South African funding, but. Largely, our funding comes from the UK, from America, from the Netherlands, and um, some other parts of Europe, and the US. We have partner schools in the US who come out and help. The teachers are sent out. They pay for teachers to come out for our amazing holiday school, which is really incredible. We do photography, yoga, capoeira, um, painting, drama, um, photography, so all the kind of extramural these children would normally not have at all. We do in a big dramatic holiday school, which ends in a huge performance where they exhibit and perform. So we, um, we have quite a lot of support from um, America, specifically a school called Riverdale Country School in New York. They have been partners for years and they're fantastic. Sure. So for other people who might try to do what you do, what, what, what is the model? How do you go to a small community and, you know, raise these kids up and, and give them the chance that they obviously should all have? So people often ask me, because I, there are a lot of Saturday schools that people start in particular, what, what makes ours successful? And I think it's 
obviously we select, so we're dealing with a certain level of child, but none of their parents have ever worked before. Um, they're the first generation into the workplace. So what we do is we just give that support that you would in a family. So it is like a family. It's small. It's not easily replicable because of that. And we have another plan for replication now. But that support continues. We talk to our university children at least once a month. If they're red flagged, once every two weeks. We give them academic support, whatever they need. So we t- it's not a short walk. We start with them in grade nine and we end with them in the workplace. So it's, it's like parenting on a, just a larger scale. That's the secret to the success. That just sounds an incredible program. Can you tell us of some of the success stories, some of the case studies? Yeah, I can tell you about one. I mean, we've got these amazing, if you go onto our website, they're amazing videos. But I mean, one of our sort of extraordinary success stories is a little orphan girl who we selected in 2007. And she works in risk management and investing now in Johannesburg. But we have children with very similar backgrounds now who are CAs. Um, One of our medical students lives in a two-room house in a village nearby. She's in fifth-year medicine. And she nearly failed in COVID simply because she had no space in her house to study. And Stellenbosch were amazing. They sent her airtime, etc. But what do you do with airtime if you've got no electricity? You can't charge your phone and there's nowhere to sit and study. So we brought them all into our students into safe houses. We've got two houses in Pretoria and a house here. And then gave them, you know, all the things they needed to get through COVID. And a lot of these kind of children fell out during COVID. So it's that kind of essential support. And she she's in fifth year medicine now. But there's so many of these stories. I've got a biomedical engineer whose parents, you know, his father works in a hardware store and his mother doesn't work at all. I mean, I can go on and on and on. So who are your educators? Who are your teachers? So we use Ridgeway College, which is a school I started um, in the 90s, but it now belongs to, I'm no longer involved. And we use a Model C school in Louis Tricot. Both have, you know, you know, like all schools, you have fabulous teachers and you have not so fabulous teachers. But we use teachers from those schools on our Saturday program and to give extra academic support for our students. But we've had a lot of success with, um, I have to give credit to Ridgeway College for years of churning out amazing students. They don't do Cambridge anymore, sadly, because I love that syllabus. I think it preps students for university. So we use their teachers in a small town. You know, teachers are hard to find. Good teachers are hard to find. Is remote education a possibility? So what we're trying to do now, which is interesting, we're trying to develop a prototype, what we're calling a hub, but we want to change the name, where what you ask yourself, what are the minimum requirements in terms of hardware to let children self-learn, to teach themselves? And what are the minimum requirements, you know, with AI, the advent of AI and online learning? So we're next year we're trying to develop a prototype whereby we can reduce the cost of this and have children learning, you know, self-driving their education. There is enough. There's enough available on the, in- on the internet. It's just access to the internet that is the problem. One thing I always find, the difference when you go to overseas countries, developed countries, that the children, you sort of reluctantly drag them along. Whereas I find the enthusiasm of African children so different. They just want to learn. When the teachers come from America, amazing teachers, I mean master teachers, when they and they teach them coding, I forgot to mention that, when they come from, from America, they're blown away by the eagerness to learn, by the 
sort of respect and love and joy uh, that, that these children have for their sacrifices coming out here. No, it really is startling. They're, well, they're hungry for education, that's why. Yeah, they sometimes would learn under a tree. They don't even have. 100%. Yeah, that's what we feel about this new prototype we're doing. We don't want to invest in capital development. We want to invest in allowing children to self-drive their education. Obviously, you always need a teacher, at least one, who understands IT at least. But children have a remarkable ability to teach themselves, given the right set of tools. It just sounds an incredible program. So for fundraising, you said you're getting money from overseas. Is that enough for these growth plans you're talking about? Well, Linda, you're, well, you never have enough money in fundraising, you know, and particularly when you're dealing in this kind of thing, you have to budget at least a year in advance because these are children's lives you're committing to. And, you know, with, with our current program, it's an eight-year walk. So, yeah, we're permanently fundraising. So, so how do you select these pupils? Because, you know, if they don't have even some of the basic education milestones. Our philosophy is if children from these kind of economic backgrounds have succeeded to the point where they can do well, we only test on maths and English and we test in the rural areas. We make it accessible to those who have to walk or and when they arrive, they're given food, they're given transport money. We do an English and maths test. Then we do a really thorough investigation into their circumstances and our philosophy is if we see a face, we don't turn them away. So then we invite 30 to 40 to interviews. Some get onto the full program. If they don't, they go onto the Saturday school program. So once we've seen a face, we keep the child. So what age group are you selecting from? Our youngest would be, before we used to go as young as 12. Now we're 13, 14. Yeah, because it's, we're selecting from high school instead of primary school. We found that we didn't get enough boys when we only selected in primary school because boys are later developers. And also um, selecting them after the first year of high school is a better indicator. So um, do you find that language, first language, is, is a problem that a lot of them, because they come from such rural areas, they only have their mother tongue? Well, remarkably, even when, when Ridgeway had Cambridge and, he, and now they have IEB, they have to do first language, but now, thank goodness, they've got at least Venda as first additional language because we were running that privately. But I've put some of my students into the local Model C school, which is really great. And there they do Venda first language, which I really believe in, but we also privately give them English first language. But no, our kids who had to do first language English did well. So when you select universities, how, um, on on what do you s select universities? Do you have special relationships with some of them? We do. We have special relationship with a whole lot of um, bursary funds, particularly Study Trust and the Marshall Scholarship Fund. But what we, we apply for bursaries across the board and then we apply for at least, because, you know, it costs a little bit to apply for universities and you, to apply for NISFAS, which is the government funding. It's administrative heavy the money kicks in late. So one of the most important, and if they don't get into res, they've got to get into private accommodation and they need, you know, somebody has to, their parents can't undersign that. So we do a lot in terms of helping them financially for the first few months, helping them actually apply. If they're doing medicine, they apply for five. If they're not applying for medicine, we normally only apply for four. And um, then, uh, yeah, we financially support them until NISFAS kicks in or until their bursary kicks in. We have two houses in Pretoria where we they live communally, which has been a wonderful support because then you've got people from your own background, your own communities, 
living together and supporting one another through that transition. That has been a very powerful model as well. Do you think the non-profit sector is getting enough help from government or no support? No, I don't actually. I really don't. And I, you know, I'm not quiet about this. And the Department of Education, I tried in the beginning, and they they haven't helped me at all. I mean, I don't wasn't even looking for financial help. I was just looking for general support. So, but the heads of schools and the local rural schools, we have a wonderful relationships with them. They couldn't be more helpful. You mentioned your future plans. Is there anything else that's sort of your dream of achieving? Another dream would be our alumni. You know, we've got all these amazing alumni now, out there now in the workplace. I'd love to um, develop an alumni program where they are taught about how to invest, how to buy houses, you know, how to vote. They should be voting. You know, we don't have enough of our students registered to vote. Wellness, mental wellness, physical wellness, how to be great parents. Just an alumni program, in other words, take that last step to our um, of our program. But it's a lot of work and a lot of funding. We are trying to sort of have a think tank with our alumni, trying to see how we can do that. Lee Bristow, thank you so much for speaking to Business. Thank you, Linda. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.